Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Lovely to be here with you all today. I hope you all are also doing well in this late summer season. I'm thrilled to bring you A Wild Sheep Chase by Haruki Murakami for this week's episode. If you haven't listened to last week's episode on Hear the Wind Sing by Haruki Murakami, his first novel published in 1979 and his second novel as well, Pinball 1973, which was published in 1980, I would highly recommend going back because a lot of the context for this episode and this book indeed comes from that last one. This book, A Wild Sheep Chase, was published in 1982, only three years after Murakami started writing novels, which I find miraculous. He is quite a prolific writer, as I'm sure you all know if you know anything about Murakami and his writing. This particular book, this piece, is his third novel after the first two aforementioned novels, which we again reviewed last week. This is the longest and most ambitious of the first three of his works for, I think, obvious reasons. Number one, this is the novel after which he decided to become a writer full-time, and this is sort of a novel that builds off of his two previous successes with Hear the Wind Sing and Pinball 1973. He was already gaining traction in Japan at this time due to winning a Young Writer's Prize, or a New Writer's Prize, I should say, and also just kind of continually writing in a style um, in a type of Japanese, in a type of symbolic, magical, realistic way and from this kind of new viewpoint that Japan had never seen in contemporary fiction before. So he gained this almost cult following early on, and I think this cult following has continued up until today, except his public is a lot bigger than it used to be, especially considering the wake of how many of his books are in translation, in not only in English, but in so many different uh, areas. And I've encountered personally uh, German translations of his works, for example, many, many a time, and it just speaks to how much of an impact he's made in contemporary literature. And in my perspective, this is completely my own opinion, but I think he's evaded the Nobel Prize um, wrongfully for many, many years. And I think that um, his work has changed contemporary literature. It's changed how I read and it's changed how a lot of my colleagues and people around me read. So when I talked last episode about my relationship with Murakami's work and how much of his work I've read, which is probably like 80-85% I estimated last episode. I'm talking about a relationship with a body of work um, that has formatively shaped my ability to read and to analyze in general. Um, and 
you know, in terms of contemporary writers, wow, he really, really stands out. So that's my opinion on Murakami. I really have high praise for him and his writing. Um, and also for his translators, Ted Goosen does a great job, um, and he has a couple other translators um, for English uh, who also have done a great job, and there's a whole history and story behind them, which I won't get into. If you're curious, you can check out Novelist as a Vocation. He talks a little bit about um, how he first came to having his works translated into English and how he first gained an English-speaking audience. We also reviewed that book, by the way, a couple months ago. It's within the last probably 20 episodes or so. I'll link it in the description for this episode. So this is, again, a sequel to the first two books. The first two books, Wind and Pinball, were written as sort of like bridges to one another. They were written as independent sequels, which means that like they're not completely dependent on each other and they certainly don't have very similar story arcs, for example. Pinball 1973 stuck out to me a lot when I read it uh, because of its dissonance and the way, the dissonant way that it's structured when compared to Hear the Wind Sing. And so these novels, in my opinion, get better and better as Murakami is starting to figure out his very unique and wonderful writing style as he's starting to incorporate these typical symbols for himself um, and these typical non-sequiturs and ways of writing that are just so Murakami. And this trilogy, I'm not sure whether it was named sort of after everything was published, that's the impression that I have, or whether this was kind of the intentional long, but this trilogy is called The Trilogy of the Rat. And as we learned in the last episode, the rat is one of the central figures, but as a central figure, he kind of is on the periphery for a lot of the uh, different novels. So I'm interested to delve into this figure of the rat later in the episode. So this book in 1982, when it was published, won the Noma Newcomers Prize. This is something that Murakami also discusses in Novelist as a Vocation, which is a collection of non-fiction essays that he wrote about writing. Um, and he writes in particular, and I think with a particular focus as well in the book, uh, about his early career, about how he got into writing, this sort of mythological a uh, story where he was at the Jingu baseball stadium and just got hit with the idea that he was meant to write a novel, or at least that he could. Uh, and then throughout uh, his history as a writer, having these just really like lucky and serendipitous, beautiful breaks, uh, including with his first novel, which was quite successful. Speaking of mythology and mystery, those are two key elements in this particular novel. And I find it interesting that mythology and mystery like kind of play a role in Murakami's life at this time and they're being transplanted to the novel and we can never say unless Murakami goes out and says it himself whether this is 
an intention on his end, and I don't think that's the goal of any literary analysis, to find the intention of the writer, but I love the elements of mythology. Um, a big part of this book is a travel to northern Japan, and he talks about sort of the early settlers of this area, um, and talks about, in particular, a mythical sheep, and we will get into that as well, and then there's this whole mystery element of what is this main character character going to find? Will he find what he's searching for, or will this story turn out in quite a different way? And that definitely keeps the plot going, it keeps the pacing up, which is an element that I didn't see in the other two novels from the perspective of a reader. Like I said a little bit earlier, this book is the one that decided Murakami's path as a writer, and in that way I read it, I think, even more closely than the first two works of his. In the last episode, I cited a an article from The Guardian by Ian Sampsum. You can go to the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for last week's episode to read that article, and one of his key points was that any of Murakami's early work, which the early works came out in English quite a bit later than they were published originally, any of his early work is going to be analyzed and seen through the lens, through the guise of what we as readers know about his current avoir, which is quite fantastic, <laughs> um, and quite big, and quite... Um, just it's really good like amazing work and it's transformative work for contemporary writing and with that in mind I really really took a critical look at this book and I read it slowly and I read it sort of with goals in mind for how it was how I was going to look at each section um, and I gained a lot from reading this book I should say um, from the perspective of a reader from somebody who's reading like a more earlier piece from a writer who's very well known um, and I would say that uh, along with my thesis from the last episode this book is definitely the most characteristic of his current style the style he's known for that very like Murakami-esque kind of um, writing that's magical realism and that's mythical and mysterious and that's transformative for the characters, it's kind of like this Bildungsroman, like, variation. Um, can we coin the term Murakami-esque, by the way? <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> Kafka-esque, except Murakami-esque. Alright, I've babbled enough, let's get into the plot. We have the same narrator, who is unnamed, as the last two novellas that we reviewed. So it's the same unnamed narrator, same guy, although he's grown quite a bit, I should say, between his like summer bar hopping days with the rat. He is working full time in his budding translation and now turned ad writing company, very like urban job, uh, which this company is the one he founded with a friend in the last novella, Pinball 1973. So it's grown quite a bit, they've kind of gone from exchanging little ads in the subways to um, a very blossoming company with a lot of work. They've hired, you know, part-times, assistants, all that. Um, and it seems like, you know, a 
like fairly well known and established company. They run basically on word of mouth and things like that. Um, the rat, meanwhile, has decided through his sort of, uh, I would say, quarter life crisis, something of this sort, uh, where he's been very depressed, drinking too much, uh, going to Jay's bar a lot. Um, he's decided to travel and he is traveling all around Japan. He's kind of uh, not staying anywhere for too long and he lands in very northern Japan. Uh, like, I think near Hokkaido, like really, really north. And he ends up sending this unnamed narrator a letter. And the letter, you know, has like, he sends the unnamed narrator like uh, drafts from a novel at one point and, you know, has these kind of like very weird, you know, explanations for who he's becoming and what he's doing and things, you can tell that he's kind of been alone for a while, which is a tribute to Murakami. He does a great job at portraying like how weird the rat has gotten over time. Um, and the rat also sends a picture with a sheep on a pasture. And um, harmlessly, the unnamed narrator had it in his desk and used it for an ad campaign. In doing so, he turns um, the attention of some very powerful sort of background political figures in Japan. Like these are like the mafia kind of political figures um, to the ad agency and specifically to him because there's a pasture of sheep, but there's one particular sheep that stands out. Number one, it's not the same breed as the other sheep. There's only actually like a very limited number of like breeds and things like this. It's been very, very restricted import wise in Japan. So they actually know like how many sheep there are in the country and they're very, very like regulated. So they know what type of sheep there are, you know, like who owns them, where they are, that kind of thing. And there's this one sheep. And the breed is not a breed that is supposed to be in Japan. As well, there's a star on its back. And this sheep with a star on its back um, is a very particular sheep. And it's a sheep with ambition. <laughs> so, um, after publishing this ad, which honestly, he gets the picture from the rat, uses it harmlessly, whatever it is. Then, the powerful political figures, the assistant of the main guy, the main guy has this kind of big blood clot in his brain, which he's had for years and years and years, and he's on his deathbed. And his assistant um, enlists the unnamed narrator to quit his job and to go find where the sheep is, to go find his friend, in other words. The main character, after a lot of hemming and hawing, decides to do so, and goes on this like very transformative Bildungsroman kind of style uh, trip, and eventually ends up in northern Japan where his friend lives. I should mention at this point that he has a steady girlfriend after, in the beginning of the novel, he gets divorced, and ends up meeting his new girlfriend through an ad campaign that he's doing with regard to ears, and he realizes that this 
woman in the picture has amazing ears. Something magical, indeed, about her ears. And so he traces back. This woman treats her to dinner. And she doesn't show her ears in public because indeed there is something magical about them and she has this sort of special sense or special intuition, some sort of like extra uh, bodily powers or like, yeah, maybe intuition is the best way to put it. Uh, she has a sense about things um, that are not really known to the material world, that kind of thing. Um, and she will show her ears once, you know, she gets to know this um, unnamed narrator, um, but only during intimate moments. And she has this thing she does where she, like, kills her ears or, like, closes them off so that she's not receptive, I think, to their influences or what they have to say. Um, so she has this very interesting relationship with her ears, and so does he. And she ends up accompanying him on this journey up north to where the rat is staying. So it comes out in the course of the novel that the unnamed narrator remembers that the rat, whose family is wealthy, owns a sort of like villa or house way, 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 way up in the mountains, like in this super secluded space not accessible by vehicle or pretty much not accessible for most of the winter and so he ends up finding his way to this place that the rat's family owns which is where indeed the unnamed narrator thinks the rat has ended up and he's right except for the rat is not there interestingly enough the rat seems like he's left a few days before or a week before. Everything is pretty much in order. There's food enough in the place and so the unnamed narrator decides to stay there and he stays there for some time um, because he knows that the rat will likely come back, though he himself has to leave before the first snow settles in because if the snow settles in then he's going to be trapped on the mountain all winter in this like quasi the shining type situation so he does end up cooking and discovering sort of a love of flavor and cooking he starts drinking a lot more and realizes he needs to be probably careful ends up cleaning even though there's not that much to clean and he is visited by uh, the sheep man which is a guy who um, has this like sheep costume on and he lives in the woods and he says that he is trying to evade the war um, and you know this is probably the probably World War II or something like a war like way way long ago and this dude just lives in the wilderness well, here is the part where all the spoilers come to light. If you don't want to hear them, skip ahead 30 seconds or a minute. Well, the sheep man turns out to be the rat in disguise, except the rat killed himself. And the rat did so because this mystical sheep, 
So this mystical sheep, who is very ambitious, uh, goes inside of people, uh, like spiritually, and in inhabits their person. And so when the sheep does so, he goes inside and basically, you know, tries to make that person uh, fulfill their full potential and like take over basically Japan. And so the first person, you know, that the unnamed narrator meets um, is the sheep professor who lives in the Dolphin Hotel in sort of the nearest big city to the rats, families, country, slash mountain place. Um, He was doing sort of some work up there where the house was and ended up getting inhabited by the sheep. And the sheep found that the sheep professor, for some unknown reason, couldn't fulfill his wishes. And so the sheep left him. Uh, And ever since, the professor has been sheepless, obsessed with sheep, uh, and basically unable to do anything with himself or his life, or yeah, also pretty much incapable of um, connecting with other humans. Um, so the sheep left this person ravaged. Same with the big mafia boss who's now um, on hospice care basically. Um, he was sort of near the same time working around this area, ends up getting inhabited by the sheep, and the sheep takes him to this place where he's like the mafia boss um, and basically has like covert control over a lot of Japan or like a lot of this these big cities and there are other people along the way but rat the rat is the last person to be inhabited by the sheep the sheep basically said or decided to leave the mafia boss so the mafia boss became sheepless the blood clot in his brain which was sort of sort of to protect the sheep uh, and a sign that the sheep was in him um, kind of takes over and the mafia boss eventually dies. The sheep goes into the rat. The rat um, ends up killing himself with the sheep inside him in order for that horrible cycle of the sheep inhabiting people, making them extremely ambitious and like kind of bloodthirsty in that regard. Um, he decides to just stop the entire cycle. And he comes to the unnamed narrator late at night on the last day that he is staying. And he reveals himself and he reveals that he was the sheep man in this kind of like spirit form. It's all dark so the narrator can't see anything. And they have this last chat and the rat tells the narrator like, say bye to Jay for me, that kind of thing, say goodbye to my girlfriend for me, which is a whole other like side thread that we could get lost on here. But the unnamed narrator eventually leaves the house. He meets up with the assistant on the way back down the mountain and gets basically set for life because the assistant sets him up. He like the assistant is really the person who set the unnamed narrator on the wild sheep chase and just in general. 
um, and then sets him up basically for life after that. Um, and the narrator doesn't really know what he's going to do, but there's this sense that like, no matter what he does, he sort of found this inner understanding of himself and this knowledge and this sort of security and peace that he didn't have before. Uh, also, I should mention this, the girlfriend gets kicked out of the house by the sheep man um, in the middle of the night. And she, in the process, loses her intuitive powers through her ears. So she leaves the mountain, basically a very, very ordinary girl, and the unnamed narrator never sees her again. So let's talk about some analysis. It's hard to know where to start. I really want to talk about the rat, so I'm going to go talk about him first, and then we're going to just talk about a couple other things like Murakamiisms and what a Bildungsroman is, and sort of like scope and comparing this book to the other two that we read last week. So the rat is like this semi-mythological figure. I don't know if there's an apt comparison to him as like the hero of the novels, um, but certainly he has his own evolution from basically being a drunk rich kid in a local bar um, to somebody who ends up like funneling how lost he is into a little bit more productive ways, traveling, trying to discover more about himself in the world, writing, um, so producing something rather than just consuming, um, and ends up doing what seems to be, at the end of the book, a net positive by sacrificing himself for the good of other potential hosts of the sheep, which is kind of like, in a weird way, drawn out to be this kind of parasitic uh, entity. Um, even though, you know, it's a sheep, it's so cute, <laughs> but I don't know, it's, there's this kind of like creepy extraterrestrial quality that the sheep has towards the end of the novel, especially as the novel becomes like almost more psychological near the end. So it is a figure um, which ends up sacrificing himself for the good of others. Um, and the narrator is almost like takes a backseat at the point where he's realizing, you know, who the rat kind of became and what made him tick and sort of the other things that he must have been struggling with at the end of his, um, at the end of his life. So in terms of the rat, I'm not sure if he's like the savior of the novel or if he's really the true like figurehead of these novels or whether he is a vehicle for more recognition and for more growth on behalf of our unnamed narrator. Let's talk about some Murakami-isms. So Murakami-isms were first introduced to me by a fellow Murakami lover um, who kind of draws these like repeated symbols and themes throughout um, his works and I think that there was one Murakamiism, one element that I didn't really understand until reading this novel, um, which we'll get to at the end. So the first hallmark is these kind of like hypersexual, mystical 
empty women in his novels. The, the girl with the ears is certainly, like, no exception. She works as, um, I don't know if it's like an escort service, something along those lines. Um, so that's what she does in her, as one of her jobs. The other is ear modeling. Um, and there's another one as well. But yeah, so, you know, there's this kind of like weird quality. The twins in the second novel, Pinball 1973, are certainly like along these lines as well. Um, maybe like the high point of all of these weird women figures is 10Q84 or sorry, 1Q84, um, and yeah, there's just like this whole like archetype of what women that he builds throughout his novels. Murakami is also like really into cats. <laughs> there's a lot of cats in his novels. Um, this one in the novel doesn't speak or anything like that, but there is a novel, I believe it's Kafka on the Shore, where there's talking cats, um, and it's awesome. And um, this cat is very, very cute, <laughs> and he's old, and he has like all these instructions, and he's the unnamed narrator's cat, and he gives it to the mafia boss's chauffeur to take care of while he's on his trip, and the mafia boss's chauffeur does an excellent job. Uh, a lot of these like magical realism elements, like things that are like not totally physical, not totally uh, spiritual, like the sixth sense that this girlfriend has uh, from her ears, or like the fact that her ears die sometimes and stuff like that, uh, or like this sheep embodying somebody, <laughs> like you know, it's kind of um, these elements that are surreal but they're within the realm of reality. Like the frame is very realistic, but what's inside the frame is not super realistic sometimes, but it's all believable within the frame of realism. So that's definitely one Murakamiism. Um, the one I wanted to talk about with regard to this novel is ears. Murakami has a thing for ears. I sort of noticed it in his, if I'm remembering right, his, short fiction. He does have a couple stories where ears become particularly important. Uh, but here is like, I think his earlier work maybe is where ears feature the most prominent role. Um, because when I, I remember when I started reading, people kept telling me, oh, watch out for how he talks about ears. And I never really saw anything until like reading his earlier work. Um, but yeah, he has a thing for ears. There's just like the shape of them. I think he likens them to the moon at, at one point, maybe. Just the way that he describes them, the, the function that they have as sort of like aesthetic elements on their own is very, very interesting and certainly uh, is a hallmark of this novel. And the Bildungsroman. Um, so Bildungsroman is kind of Bildung in German means education, um, and Roman in many languages, not just German, means novel, like fictional novel. And so Bildungsroman is sort of like a novel where the protagonist gains an education or like has some sort of uh, transformation, sometimes that's like more physical, sometimes that's um, you know, philosophical, but a lot of times it's like 
a, a trip or some sort of like experience that changes their life and it's it's usually a formative experience of like a boy turning into a man for instance um and so this novel the narrator is older of course it's like sort of a different like setting and cultural uh heritage and all that but at the same time like it is a billong's roman in the sense that the character has this like story arc that changes him so dramatically that the, at the end he's a different person he's a more self-aware person he moves forward with sure sure steps and that's something that um surprised me at the end of the novel i didn't realize i guess that the main character would have this such a drastic transformation overall and just to tie um, all of this together i think i'll end um, with a quote from the novel, but um, to tie all this together, I wanted to talk about this book in comparison to the other two. The scope of this book, as I said earlier, is what sets it apart from the other two. Not only is it longer page-wise, but Murakami really uses the page length. These mystery, mythical elements that Murakami references on his website, which is linked in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the notes for this episode, really, really does explain the premise and the framing of this book really well. And there's just a ton of history and a ton of scientific almost information about sheep and uh, the characters are better developed. There's this relationship um, within this world crafted by Murakami that wasn't in the other books. So again, sort of the scope, the way, like how deep that he takes things, um, the connection between the rat and his old friend, for example, our unnamed narrator, um, gets explored in a more meaningful way and in a, in a more philosophical way than in the other novels. Um, so overall, what a joy to read these three novels, these first two novellas from Murakami, and then his third book, the one that was decisive also for his writing career. I'll end with a quote from A Wild Sheep Chase. This is from page 266 and following page as well, 267. The chapter is chapter 37. It's called Things the Mirror Shows, Things the Mirror Doesn't. I'll just read an excerpt from this chapter. The morning of the 10th day, I decided to forget everything. I had already lost what I was supposed to lose. In the middle of my morning run, it began to snow again. This time an opaque snow, a sticky wet sleet edging toward ice flakes. Unlike the first loose snow, this one was nasty. It stuck to the body. I cut short my run, returned to the house and drew a bath. While the bath was coming to temperature, I plunged myself down in front of the heater, but I still couldn't get warm. A damp chill had seeped into me. I couldn't bend my fingers, and my ears burned and felt brittle, as if they would drop off any second. All over, my skin felt like cheap pulp paper. A thirty-minute soak in the tub and hot tea with brandy finally brought my body back to normal, although for the next two hours I suffered from intermittent chills. So this was winter on the mountain. The snow kept falling straight through until evening, covering the entire pasture in white. The snow let up just as night cloaked the world in darkness, and once again a profound hush drifted in like mist. 
a hush I could do nothing to deny. I put the record player on automatic repeat and listened to White Christmas 26 times. Unquote. So that was page pages 266 to 67. Again, uh, what, like, what odd, what an odd scene, first of all, this person is, like, all alone on this mountain, um, is experiencing the first snow, expecting to get warm, and then in, in later parts of this chapter, um, he'll discover a mirror that needs cleaning and realize some things that he can't see in the mirror, namely the sheep man. So, again, just like this evolution of Murakami's writing in the last three episodes, I've just found so fascinating and so instructional as well from a retrospective viewpoint. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, tune in for an episode on An Error in Chemistry by William Faulkner. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.